right about 900 years ago, in like 1130, 1135, the world's population crossed 330 million people. It's a big number. It's a huge number. It's, you know, numbers that start to become uncomprehensible when you get to billions and trillions. But for us, 330 million is important because that's what the United States' population is right now, today. In 1130, we experienced the creation of paper money. It was used for the first time in China. Anchor Wat was built right around that point in time. It was before a route was successfully completed between Europe and India. So a lot has happened between then and now, but it's still not like a tremendously long period of time. 330 million Americans, not just 330 humans, is what we're currently trying to vaccinate. It is a battle, it is a fight, it is a struggle, it is a logistical challenge that we have never before faced in the history of humanity. How do you provide vaccinations to every single person in the world? How do you provide COVID protection to all of Earth's occupants? And it's going to be a struggle. It was never going to roll out perfectly, smoothly, or easily. And we're seeing that here in the United States, the most industrial, wealthiest nation in the world. We are struggling to do it. But we're managing. We're getting there. By this time next year, hopefully these problems are all long behind us. As we previewed a couple of weeks ago, with our episode of Connor Dellenbank of Good Guys Racing, we were going to do an episode about a different team, Levine Law Group, and their decision as a team not to race until they were vaccinated. And here we are today with that episode. My name's Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. To be clear, this is not an episode that's done in response to Connor's. Connor was not a spokesperson for his position. He's a guy who made a decision to race. The women of Levine Law Group, to the contrary, are trying to make a point. They're trying to make a point that it is safer to wait to race your bikes until they are vaccinated. And as far as we can tell, they're the only team that's come out and actively and emphatically stated that position. There are individuals who've chosen not to race until they're vaccinated, myself included, but this is the first team that's come out and made it a policy to say what they're saying. And it's an important first step for them. It's an important step for the entire community that we are willing to be socially active. We are willing to be responsible to those around us and to say something that we feel is appropriate. There are a lot of issues out there right now that we, as a community, should be socially responsible to each other for. And we're going to cover those in the upcoming shows here in the next couple of weeks. But what we want to talk about here today is the who, what, when, where, how, and ultimately why Levine Law Group made its decision. Before we get into the episode, I want to talk about the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows, the world's only collection of independent top-tier cycling media out there. 
please head on over to WideAnglePodium.com to check out the full lineup of shows that we've got. Slow Ride Podcast, Nowhere Fast, Cyclocross Radio, The Grodio. I'm a huge fan of The Grodio, having just been out on my first gravel ride ever. Uh, I am addicted to Zach Schuster and Amanda Nauman and Bill Shiken and all their insights. Can't wait for a new episode to come out sometime in the near future, hopefully. So head on over. Please consider becoming a member of the network and help support this content creator-owned endeavor. If you want more information about this show, CriteriumNation.com is the place for it. But I would be supremely enthused if you would leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is that you happen to get your podcast. It helps others find the, the show, find what we're doing here. And it really helps me figure out what I'm doing that you like or don't like. So let's get in now to our episode here with Emma Bass and Dakota Top of Levine Logger. Hi, I'm Dakota. I'm currently a junior at Milligan studying biology and chemistry. I race for Milligan out here in Eastern Tennessee. And then I also have raced for Levine Law Group for this is my fifth year on the team. Love it. Can't wait to eventually get back. Hey, I'm Emma Bast. I'm a uh, bike racer on Levine Law Group. This is my fourth year, I guess, going back. Um, it's hard with having the lost year, as I'm calling it sometimes in my head. But I'm an energy attorney, and that's about it. Obviously, we're here to talk about COVID. We're here to talk about vaccinations. We're here to talk about racing. Emma's inclusion in this interview is clear. I mean, anybody who can see, I love talking to lawyers and to have a good debate about policy and topics with a lawyer makes perfect sense. On top of that, Emma also is super intelligent and graduated from Georgetown and, you know, knows her stuff and is the number three uh, finisher in the individual competition for USA Crits the last time it was run in 2019. Dakota, you're kind of the X factor here. You know, the junior at Milligan, why why are people supposed to listen to you when it comes down to COVID and vaccines and all that stuff? What is it that makes you so special? I am studying both biology and chemistry. I've done research on multiple viruses. Me and one of my professors did research on the SARS-CoV-19 virus over about April. And then actually in October, I did have COVID, tested positive, had a really rough 14 days. And now I am fully vaccinated now. I got my first vaccine on January 26th. And then I got my second vaccine on March 5th. So now about two weeks later, I am fully vaccinated and ready to get on with my life. How was it having COVID? So unfortunately, I was very, very sick. I was in complete isolation away from everyone at my university. I was placed in a hotel room type situation. Without fever reducers, I was about at 106 degree fever. And then with fever reducers, I was sitting at about 103 for about seven days. And then I lost my taste and my smell, had a really bad cough. And then the comeback from that, I had a really hard time training for about a month because I could, my heart rate would just spike to about 200, even doing an easy ride. Breathing was really hard. And then now, six months later, I still don't have my sense of smell back. I do have taste back, thankfully. So I can taste all of my delicious coffee rides, but can't quite smell them. Just for kind of background knowledge, obviously 98.6 is a typical temperature for a human being. 
I run a little bit low. It bothers all of my doctors, whatever. They can get over it. 104 degrees is kind of a magic mark when it comes down to humans. And you were at 106. What does that mean? So if I was unable to get my fever down below that 104 mark on fever reducers, thankfully I was, I would have had to go into the hospital and be placed in cooling blankets in order to cool my body. Just because at that type high of a temperature, the proteins in your body start to denature and that prevents you from digesting food, from functioning as a normal human being. And if it stays at that high of a temperature for that long of a time, you will face uh, long-term consequences. So I did have a fever for about eight days. And if I had sat at 106 degrees for eight days, I would essentially be just a blob of brain at this point. Basically brain dead? Yeah. My brain would no longer function at the uh, rate that it functions. And then I would lose a lot of my ability to digest food, especially during that time, because the enzymes in your stomach rely on temperature. Same within your small intestines. And then the proteins in your brain that help with like neural firing and stuff do depend on temperature in some sense as well. So we're talking about the decision here. We are not going to race our bikes until we are vaccinated. This is what you Levine Law Group have put out on all social media channels. It's your statements. It's your mission statement for the year, among other things, is vaccination first, then racing. I want to do this in the the classic five W's, who, what, when, where, and then start answering the how and the why. So let's do the who, when, and what right here. So who, Levine Law Group, when, 2021, what is the what? Well, we had a team discussion, like all hands, back in early January, and we, you know, everyone on the team has some kind of experience with it. Um, we've some of us have family members who are high risk. Some of us have family members who got sick. My grandmother almost died. She had to be revived by an ambulance by emergency services. You know, we have uh, family members who are just plain, you know, little older mom and dad. So we had an all hands discussion and decided that for our team, it was very important to us as individuals and as a team not to risk it, essentially, with Dakota having kind of given us that firsthand perspective and knowing how terrible this disease is and how transmissible it is and how dire the consequences can be. This is not a simple cold. This is, this is, it's literally life or death. And we all decided that it was not worth the risk. When we talk about what? The vaccination. No racing before it. Are we talking one shot? Are we talking bull shots? Are we talking Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson? Can you give us some details about what it is that you guys are actually working on as a team? We are working on fully vaccinated. And so that means, you know, one shot if it's Johnson & Johnson, you know, both shots, if it's Pfizer or Moderna. And I think we're not at, we're not trying to dictate which shot it has to be because the rollout is so spotty across the country. It would just be really unrealistic and frankly unfair to say you have to have this one specific vaccine. People don't have that kind of consumer choice in much of the country. People can make 
if you know can make an elective choice if they choose to get one or the other but we're not dictating which one but we are saying you have to be fully vaccinated and you do have to be cleared and that's and that's the line um it has to be individuals we're not saying the entire team has to be vaccinated again because of that disparate roll disparate rollout you know Arizona is open to all ages 16 and up and Pennsylvania is still in phase 1a and so it's it's i think it's a thing where we're making allowances for the fact that the country roll countrywide roll, rollout has been all over the place but if individuals are going to race they need to be fully vaccinated let's talk how obviously you alluded to the fact that this is a, a team decision it was a team discussion how did the team come to this discussion you know when you guys started having that conversation in january there clearly had to be some voice or voices that that led this charge to say hey we've got an issue here in this country or or in this world because this is definitely not an american problem let's do something about it how did that discussion come it was a very collective decision you know it it was brought up on the team call and it was pretty instant there wasn't like a debate no one had to be talked into it into it it was very much hey I'm not comfortable racing until I'm fully vaccinated and I don't think any of the rest of us should be either. And everyone said, yes, I feel the exact same way. There was no, no one had to be talked into anything. It's, it was an absolutely collective decision. And it was really important to us that it be, an, that everybody be on board. But that's how it was. It was very, it's very, it's very simple to us. And that's, I think, part of why we're being so vocal about this is because it is such a clear decision. That's a question. Why make it? a vocal statement? Why make it a statement at all? Why not just do your part quietly and silently and and go on the way? Why is this the thing that Levine Law Group wanted to come out and say emphatically, we are not doing this until X? Honestly, I think there's a lot of people who've been posting about racing and posting racing-related things as if we were still in the before times. And that's most of what you see in the cycling world right now and it's it's very it's very weird to me my life's been pretty heavily impacted by covid other people on the team's lives have been heavily impacted by covid and it's it's very bizarre to see so many people in racing acting as if there isn't this global pandemic going on as if you know half a million people haven't died and i think we wanted to be a voice to say this this is wrong. This is unsafe. And it's putting people at risk. And also to allow people who feel the same way to know that they are not the only ones who feel that way, that it's that cycling is not just full of people who are going to carry on as if nothing's as if nothing's wrong and nothing's happening, because, you know, that's not the only voice. The statement's been clear about no racing until vaccination. Does racing mean just the big races? Does racing mean local races? Does racing mean group rides? Because, you know, Emma, you and I have had this conversation where you have said, and and I, I borrowed this phrase uh, a little while ago in another episode, if you squint hard enough, I can see a local group ride being okay. And I loved that phraseology so much that it kind of like sunk in with me because if I squint hard enough, I look like Michael Fassbender. 
So I'm going to accept that phraseology, but I'm also going to point out that there are some, I don't know, holes in it. You know, how broad is this scope of racing? I think racing, putting on a number in any sense of cycling is racing. Meaning if you're showing up, putting on a number, getting to a start line and trying to win at the end, that's a race. In terms of group rides, I think, so I go to university and I have an entire cycling team of about 32 people here. That is my bubble. And in my eyes, me riding with my bubble is more acceptable than me going out to the Johnson city group ride where I have people who aren't at my university, aren't with who I'm with day to day. And then I don't know if they're safe. I don't know how they've been handling COVID. And even though I am vaccinated, I don't know for sure if I would be safe and could potentially bring COVID back to my team, to my family, to anybody else that I'm around hospital. I work as a first responder. So I'm already having that exposure and having an additional exposure potentially at group rides or races in any sense is not okay. And Emma, obviously you're up in Northeast Pennsylvania, not a huge number of groups that are happening up there. You know, it's not like you live in New York City or anything like that. You know, what do you think about the idea of a group ride of five, 10 people? I will say first that we do not have a strict team policy on group rides, in part because there are a lot of different circumstances. Um, We have people who are in college, like Dakota, um, and people who are all over the country. And I think that's not been something that we have set uh, strict guidelines on. I will say, I think post-vaccination group rides, definitely okay. I think the idea of bubbles is problematic because people mostly think their bubbles are a lot smaller than they are. I do feel conflicted about group rides. For myself, I'm erring on the side of caution. I have not gone to any group rides since before the pandemic kicked in. And I won't go to any until I'm fully vaccinated because I think, again, the risk is is too unknown and it's just it's just not quite there in terms of safety. And it makes sense that there wouldn't be data on that because, you know, the folks who study this kind of thing have been busy trying to figure out much more important, much more immediate risks um, than group rides. But again, because it's an unknown and because it's so risky, I'm not comfortable doing it until vaccination. I think the things that make cycling higher risk are definitely mitigated in group rides. Travel, overnight stays, being in cars, being inside and restaurants and all of that. There was that study um, out of, I think, Belgium about aerosolized particles and drafting that suggested that they might, that the coronavirus could be caught during that. I don't know if there's been much follow-up. The authors of that study stood by it. And I believe that study has now been referenced and is being used as guidance for the Olympics and has been adopted by the IOC. So there's that. Again, I think erring on the side of caution for a disease that affects the things that are particularly important to us as endurance athletes, like namely specifically our lung and heart function. It's, It's not really a question. 
I haven't spent this long developing this much lung and heart capacity to throw it all away because I couldn't hold out for to wait for another month for a group ride. You might be running afoul of one of my rules that I always teach and preach witnesses, which is don't anticipate the next question. And and you started to answer the next question that I had created in my mind. So it's dangerous that Emma's already in my head. It's about evidence for in-event transmission. Because I think a lot of people take a look at your stance and they take a look at Levine Law Group's stance or the stance of anybody who's who is saying, no, let's hold off. And they'll say, what evidence do you have that in a bike race that there is transmission? Has anybody gotten sick from a bike race? Or has anybody gotten sick from a football practice? Or anybody gotten sick from a hockey practice? Or whatever athletic endeavor it happens to be. And I'm from what you were explaining about this Belgian study is there is a potential of acquiring and transmitting the virus that way. And that's what's causing you partial concern. I think it's too unknown. You know, the potential, it hasn't been proven or disproven either way. And it has been suggested that it's potential. I don't know that anyone has definitively traced a transmission back to a group ride. Uh, I think if you went into other sports, football, hockey, basketball, maybe, I'm not sure. Dakota, maybe you can speak to that a little bit. I mean, we look at the football teams that were in isolation from one another for 90% of their time outside of practice, and we still saw a bunch of them getting COVID. So in at least some sense of how they are interacting with one another is causing them to get COVID. But like Emma and Rob have said, like it isn't exactly necessarily the in-race transmission that is the biggest worry because like track yourself from the time that you leave your house to the time you get back to your house from a bike race. You leave your house, you get in a car, you go to the gas station, you get a morning Red Bull. There's 10 people you've interacted with already. You get to the bike race, you check in, there's another 10 to 15 you go to the Porta Johns, there's another 10 to 15 on the start line, 50 to 80 people. You race, you're in close contact with people. At the end, you go have dinner with your teammates and your friends. There's more people. Same thing, you maybe need more gas to get back home. And at that point, you've already come into contact with close to 200 people. How do you know that those 200 people are safe? So it's not necessarily the in-race transmission that's the biggest worry, but rather the entirety of you being out in interacting at a bike race, because I'm sure everyone listening to this has been to a bike race. It is not shy of people. You know, one of the things that I learned when I talked to Connor Dellenbank, and, you know, he's been racing in Florida, he's pointed out the precautions that they have taken down there. Everybody wears masks, there's temperature checks, you, you are only allowed to take a mask off at the start line once you get ready to go. I was looking at some of the videos this weekend from the men from ButcherBox who went to Panama, not Panama City Beach, Panama, i.e. the country, to do a race down there. And it looked like there was rapid testing that was taking place before some of the stages of the race. Why are these precautions insufficient? Well, rapid testing does have a chance for a false positive just because... The way that these tests work is if you have that, the viral particles in the snot of your nose, and they do 
attached to the binding of the rapid test, that's what causes a positive. But if you just so don't just so happen to not have the viral particles in that specific swab of the test, or if they don't do it right, then you have a false negative and you do have COVID and can transmit it. In addition, like masks only protect people if both sides are wearing them. So if one person isn't wearing them, then there's a chance that you can transmit it or receive it. And then it also can have up to a two-week incubation period inside of you, which is why the original quarantine period was 14 days. So you could have the virus, be unaware that you've had the virus, test negative, and then two days later at the end of the race, actually be testing positive and then be spreading that virus throughout that entire time that you've been there. Emma, I'm going to pitch this one to you because there's some words here that are very common to lawyers. The idea of informed consent and assumption of the risk for adults. How is that not something, informed consent and assumption of the risk for an adult, not something that we should be taking into consideration? You're willing to put yourself out there. You're willing to take the risk. You know it. You're a big boy and girl. Why not let them do it? Well, I mean, this is a super simple thing. The whole danger of uh, of a highly tr- transmissible airborne virus is that you pass it on. You, it's not just you, is that you inherently are a risk to others. And you cannot, cons- you can, you can make a consent for yourself, but you can't, I can't consent, have Dakota consent. I can't say like, oh yeah, she said it's fine. That's, that's not a thing I can do in any sense, ethically or legally. So it's very simple is that you're not just consenting for yourself. You, it, it's fundamentally a flawed concept. We're young. We're athletes. We're fit. Some of us are more fit than others. And some of us have spent way more time, you know, going after the chocolates and beer during this particular lockdown. You know, what's wrong with taking the risk? You know, you get sick, you get sick. Why, why should we be worried about it? Uh, so I am a very healthy 19 year old. Obviously I ride my bike quite a bit if I'm on a USA crits team and I got really, really sick from it and had heart problems and respiration problems for quite a bit of time afterwards. So even though I was probably one of the 1% of 19 year olds that actually got sick and actually faced these repercussions, is it worth it to take that risk? Even though it is low, It is a lifelong thing. And we saw that with some of the Alabama football players who are no longer allowed to play the sport that they love and that they signed into college to do because when they got COVID that their heart enlarged too much for them to be able to safely play. And if something were to happen, their heart could literally explode and that could cause them to die on the field. And even though some of them didn't have symptoms of COVID where the fever, the cough, that kind of stuff, they did still face these Uh, after effects and with the enlarged heart and the respiration problems later. So even though the risk isn't necessarily like, oh, I'm going to have a cough for a few days or I'm going to have a fever for a few days, you may not even realize that you have COVID, but two months down the line when you're in the middle of a bike race, really hard, a lot of cardiac output, and you had COVID and your heart's enlarged, all of a sudden your heart explodes and you're done. To build on that, I've been thinking of this as kind of Schrodinger's virus. It's the virus that may or may not kill you. It may or may not make you really sick. And there's no way to know until you get it. So the idea that you can consent to an unknown is also a little absurd. 
you can't you 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 can say oh it's just a cough but it might not be it might kill you um it might either it might give you long-term really long dire long-term health issues and there's a fundamental assumption that people are going to only get a mild case and be fine and that's just a flawed assumption there was a study that's been done based on professional athletes in the ball sports so NFL NBA WNBA Major League Baseball, hockey, soccer. Of all of those athletes, and I have no idea how many athletes that actually is, I think that's a really interesting question that somebody should do some math on. I know that there are just under 1,700 NFL players in the United States. Well, this article here from NBC Sports that was published on May, uh, March 4th, so only a couple weeks ago, indicates that 798 professional athletes tested positive for COVID-19 in the United States. So among those people. Of them, three developed myocardias, which is the inflammation of the heart that Dakota was talking about, and two developed pericardias, or inflammation of the tissue surrounding the heart. That's super long-term, I'm never coming back consequences. You look at uh, you know, another study about long COVID, which is kind of something that I think is relatively un not understood. It's those people who just keep suffering from the affliction, from the symptoms, regardless of the two weeks or whatever period of time that most people assume COVID takes to run its course once you're infected. Some people experience fogginess of the brain and other long-term effects for six, seven, eight months. So you're looking at, you know, small percentages here, you know, five out of 789, but these are still significant percentages. What is it about these cardiovascular and neurological impacts that are the most concerning to you? My goal in life is to become a trauma surgeon in the Navy. I want to help people in that way. If I had COVID and my main symptom from that was mental fogginess, how would I be certain that 10 years down the road when I'm operating on a human being trying to save their life, that that wouldn't affect me then? How would I be certain that I could help someone to the best of my ability if my brain wasn't functioning to the highest of its ability? And I feel like People in other professions and other life goals will have those same things. Like you guys as lawyers, how are you guys going to have a solid defense when your brain isn't 100%? The idea of losing the ability to walk around comfortably, to do the sports that I love, to do the activities that I love is just not worth it. Especially when at this point, it's really a question of perspective. And it's a question of, do I wait a few more months? You know, it's... The, it's not even the vaccines are coming. The vaccines are here. They are actively being distributed. Many people in the country have already gotten them. We're up to almost, you know, it's like 28%, give or take at this point. I haven't checked today's statistic um, of the country is fully vaccinated. It's it's not a question of like, this is never, you know, I race unvaccinated or I never race again. It's a question of, I don't race for a few more months versus the potential of catching something that will keep me from not only never from never racing again. And that just seems like a very obvious choice. There are colleagues of ours that have made the opposite choice, that they have started racing. 
they've started engaging in activities that are more communal. You know, Florida, Texas, I think Connecticut have all basically reopened their businesses, reopened their lives, restarted everything. I mean, we saw, I think it was last week or the week before, they had to issue an emergency order shutting things down in Miami Beach because there were too many spring breakers in Miami Beach. One person was reported to have said, oh, I wanted to come down and see, I had been here in Miami Beach before the pandemic and I wanted to come down and see what Miami Beach was like during COVID, which is a brain screeching stop of a statement. But what about those people who have started racing again? They've made a different choice. You know, how do we as a community approach them and approach them in a respectful and appropriate and professional way and, and, and say, maybe you shouldn't do that or maybe you should think about it? Honestly, I think it's terrible. I think it's a bad look. I think it makes you look out of touch. Um, I think it makes you look selfish. I th- think there are a l- it belittles the efforts of all of the people who have been staying home and uh, staying safe and putting their lives on hold so that they don't endanger others. And I think when someone goes out and races in the middle of a pandemic, it it's a real it it's a real. Um, flipping the bird to the efforts of all of the people who are doing that into the folks who have to go out and who don't have a choice because of their profession. Um, and maybe they're a nurse, maybe they're a doctor, maybe they're a grocery store worker. And it's, it's, it's rude. And I think it's also a bad look for social media. I think it may, I personally look at that and I'm like, I can't relate to that. That's it doesn't it certainly doesn't sell me on whatever their sponsors are selling. And I think companies are aware of that. And but it's 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 a bad look. And I think it makes the community look bad. I think it makes bike racers look out of touch and selfish. And in a world where we as cyclists already have to fight tooth and nail against terrible reputations across the country that lead to a lot of deaths. I think doing something like that just exacerbates that. And I, it makes me very upset. But bike racing is just following the examples of all the other sports that are out there. If you look at the NFL or major league baseball, hockey, all of them have continued to play. Even college football played and they're not professionals. You look at European cycling, which is where a lot of us take our cues from You've got, you know, all of the major men's races, you know, most of the major women's races are happening with the exception of Perry roubaix And for reasons that I'm not exactly sure, that has become kind of a, a progressive event, choosing to not happen during the course of the pandemic because things were bad in northern France. You know, how, how can we fault cycling when all of the other professional sports around us are continuing to go on if cycling had the kind of budget and the precautions that these more professional sports were taking so from what i've read uh professional teams have been staying in their bubbles and by bubbles i mean like field hotel room hotel room where they're eating food 
and then they play where they haven't had any contact with anyone outside of their teammates and their coaches. I would be slightly more comfortable seeing other people who are also in that situation where I know they haven't had outside contact. And speaking for the NCAA, so the WNBA or whatever the women's like big conference is going on right now, I've been following it on TikTok. For the first two weeks, they were in hotel rooms, unable to see anyone but their own teammates except for games. And they were tested about once every three days. They had all their meals inside of their rooms. And even now, they aren't allowed to leave outside of their teams. They are now allowed to congregate as a team but not with other teams, just in the off chance that someone on one of those other teams does have COVID and can transmit it that way. But they're being very, very safe in my eyes in terms of keeping them isolated away from one another in a sense that, like, especially with college, like they can kind of be like, hey, I got this nice little piece of paper that says this is how you're paying for university, so do as I say. And so if bike racing had followed that and where we were mandated to quarantine for two weeks before mandated to get a test mandated to wear masks and only interact with those types of people, I feel like it would be a little bit different of a scenario and we'd be having a different conversation. The idea of social media and the way that we have, we as a community have been playing this out in social media is troubling because social media itself um, has a tendency of going negative. There's, always the battle of the comments within a a, a particular post that you put up there. And we've seen some very unpleasant exchanges between people who think it's safe, people who don't think it's safe, people who say vaccinate first, don't, you know, it's, it, 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 it is an echo chamber. What do we do in order to make sure that there, this doesn't negatively impact the long-term health of our community as a community, so socially. We will need to see each other on the other side of this. We will need to compete against each other. You know, how do we keep that temperature down so that it doesn't become this ugly sniping that bike Twitter seems to generate? That's a really hard question. I think there's a real challenge here. And I think that this is, this pandemic is going to very fundamentally alter the shape of the community. And I think it will fundamentally alter how some people see other people. There are those who have drawn very clear lines about what level of risk they're willing to accept. And there are those who have shown that they don't care about those lines and they have very different ones. And I think to some extent that these are, you know, maybe not going to be unbridgeable, but I, I think it will alter the shape of of what people think. I think the community is pretty forgiving. I think people will be able to move past it socially uh, to some extent, um, partly because it's, it's, it's like family. You move past it because you have to, but you might not forget about it. And I think there are people who are being driven out of the community by by what we've seen, by people going out and racing during the middle of a pandemic and saying that it's fine and saying that they don't care. And I I know from conversations that I've had that there are people who are saying, you know, I'm just not going to come back to bike racing. I don't want to be around that. That's not the kind of people that I want to surround myself with and who I want to spend so much time and effort on. And I think we are going to lose a lot of people if if it continues like that. Bike racing for me is a mental health activity. It is a way that I 
continue to express a certain level of balance in my work life and in my personal life. It is the way that I deal with and work through frustration. I, I know that a lot of us will get mad about something or we'll have something very heavy weighing on us and we go for a ride. We let our brain subconscious process whatever the issue is and deal with it through the act of riding. And when you come back from that ride, you deal with the problem because you've got a new, fresh perspective on it. I also know that part of bike racing for me is the social aspect of it. I love seeing you guys, all of you. Emma, you and I have been friends for years now. Because of the pandemic, our friendship has been strained. My friendship with other people has been strained because I'm not seeing them. I'm not in that group with them. And, you know, we've, we've as friends sniped at each other, not because of anything that happens specific between us, but because there's so much stress, there's so much anger, there's so much frustration that's just like holding you in and you just explode in the exact wrong moment. I know that you guys haven't been monks. You know, you've not been living in a cell by yourself. You know, you've been talking to friends. I know, Emma, you made a, a day trip to see a good friend, Ms. Fahrenheit. You went all the way down to Philadelphia to see her. That's my, my way of plugging her so that hopefully she rates the show one or two slots up and gets into her top five. Shameless. Uh, shameless plugs. But... It is this emotional connection that we have to sport. And this is emotional connection that we have to each other. And if we don't have it, it really robs us of the joy of life. So I can see why people would say, I can't do it anymore. I can't sit in my apartment in the city or my house in the countryside or whatever it happens to be. I need to see my friends. What do you, how have you guys managed emotionally and mentally through this challenge because you've made the decision not to congregate in bike races, which has been a social avenue for all of us? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you touched on two important things there. One, racing is pretty, is a pretty important aspect for a lot, you know, a lot of us who do it socially. And two, People say, well, riding is important to my mental health. Well, nothing is stopping you from going out for a ride. You can still go out for a ride and process the things you need to process. You just can't do it in a race setting surrounded by 120 of your closest friends. And you can't travel across the country to do it before you've, you know. And I think that's it's important to separate those things. And I think that, you know, it's been rough. I'm not going to pretend it's not. It's been really, really hard. I haven't seen my family in months. I haven't seen most of my friends in months. The very limited social interaction I've had has been like a oasis in a desert. And for myself and my household, we drew a very clear, bright line that um, no, no amount, like nothing about racing would be worth getting someone sick. And I've found other other ways to deal with my mental health. I can, I still go out and ride. Um, I miss the racing. Um, 
I talk to my friends, I've got that scheduled, but like, it's, it's just for us, the bright line was it's not worth it to get someone sick or, and maybe they die. Maybe they just get really sick, but either way, knowing that I might've had a part in that was not worth it. And that's what I keep returning to because I have that to hold on to. Like whatever I'm doing, the suffering I'm, I'm going through, my friends are also doing the same thing. They're making the same sacrifice. My teammates are making that same sacrifice because it's it's so selfish to do otherwise. So Dakota, you're hearing what the folks who were born in the 1980s and or 1970s happened to think about it. What about somebody who's born in the 2000s? So I'm in a little bit different situation than most of my teammates on Levine. I am in college. I see people every day. I I do have quite a few in-person classes. Obviously, I have a roommate. I have suite mates. My teammates live the next suite over. So I do have a lot of people around me. Yeah, we are COVID safe most of the time. Obviously, when I'm in my room, I don't wear a mask. It's still been hard. We still haven't been able to go to races. We haven't had the camaraderie with other teams. I haven't had any interaction with any of my Levine teammates since August of 2019. So it's been well over a year and a half now. The way that uh, I think Emma and I have been dealing with this the best is daily cat memes, which has actually helped (laughs) a lot. And now... I mean, I grew up with technology, so having the technology to have what we called at the beginning of the pandemic was quarantini Mondays, where we would all hop on a Zoom call together and we'd talk and we'd have that opportunity to communicate with one another. Granted, it wasn't in person. You still get to communicate with your teammates, which helps a lot. I'm very glad we don't live in like the 1800s right now where I don't have a phone and I wouldn't be able to interact with my teammates. But Even though I'm not getting to race bikes with them, I am still getting to interact with them, which makes me feel a little bit better about being so isolated away from them. But I'd rather see them over Zoom or GroupMe or something of that sort and not get them sick and then wait until June when we're all going to be vaccinated and we're all hopefully going to be healthy and then able to see them and get some really, really awesome hugs. Since we're talking about June, June means bike racing. Bike racing means Tulsa, USA crits. Going back to the beginning of our discussion, we were talking about how. So I want to finish up the how part here with your decision. Did you consult with your sponsors, with Levine, with Cannondale, with LEL, with USA crits about the decision to not race your bikes. Yes, we did talk to them and they're all fully on board. And so, you know, I think it was very clear to them why we were doing it and they support us in it. And we're really grateful for that. Our sponsors are incredible. And so it's nice to have, it's really, I think, you know, we might've been having a different conversation if they hadn't, but with them, but I think this was so important to all of us and they support that. What about the remainder of the community? How has the response been from other USA Crits teams, other women's teams, other men's teams, you know, in the community? Have you heard anything? For me, I've heard nothing but good things. Um, People who think it's good, people are happy that we've said something and take a stand. Um, I don't know if other people have gotten different feedback, but I've only gotten good feedback from it. I agree with Emma on that one. I've only ever heard good things about it. I haven't really seen anyone follow in the same footsteps as us. 
However, I've heard a lot of individuals follow with us, but no, not any other teams take the same stance that we have. This show comes out on April 7th. We're waiting right now for a decision from Tulsa Tough on whether or not they're going to go ahead with their early June date or if they're going to go with their backup date. There's a potential that that decision will come between now, the day that we're recording this, and the day that this show airs. So this may be an irrelevant topic. USA Crits, obviously a very important thing for Levine Law Group, a very important thing for the crit racing community as a whole. So if Tulsa was to happen in June and you aren't vaccinated, you will not compete. And Emma, you are, you know, you were on the podium the last time around at USA Crits. And Dakota, I know that you are a candidate for not just the overall, but for the U25 competition. If you're not vaccinated, you know, you run the risk of not being able to compete and not being able to participate in the overall. Fortunately, most USA Crits events are in July and August and September, so we've got built-in time. Does that fact that you could be basically forfeiting the competition because of this decision bother you? Oh, it'd be a real bummer. But no. Like I said, it's pretty simple when you frame it up properly, which is, is, is me doing this race? Is this year of racing worth the risk of getting someone sick, possibly to the point of death? And no, it is not. It's, it's very, it's a very simple question. Um, I, I'm not going to pretend it's an easy one. I'm going to be really bummed if that's what happens. I will be sad. I will be watching from home and I'll be like, ah, man, I sure wish the vaccine rollout wasn't such a mess so I could have gotten this. But it's not going to be easy. But it's it's absolutely the necessary and right thing to do. And I don't struggle with it at all from that perspective. I think it's very, very simple. Are you okay with losing the argument? You may be right, 100% right, that the appropriate thing is to vaccinate first before we engage in bike racing. But in the popularity contest that exists in the world, more people may decide to not agree with you than do agree with you and choose to go out there and bike race. Are you okay with you taking this stand and not a majority of the people following you? I think yes and no. Yes, because my decision I know is going to keep me and the people around me safe. Do I agree with other people going out and racing bikes right now? No, but I am one person. I do not have control over them. I cannot stop them. Do I think they are making the wrong decision? Yes, absolutely. But they also have free will and are able to make that decision for themselves. So I think as long as I am doing everything that I possibly can to keep myself and my family and my friends safe, then I can't do much more. I mean, if you can live with, you know, knowing that you might have made someone sick because you chose to bike race, if that's something that you're cool with, that that's on you. I will be, you know, I recognize that I might sort of, as you say, lose the argument. The popular opinion might go a different way. Um, Evidence might suggest right now that it has, although maybe not. You know, I think there's not that many people going out to races, and I think there's a whole lot of people who who are taking notes 
and and I will be sad for bike racing and for what it will mean about the values of the community if if this is a thing people are okay with it will it will be very disappointing it'll be really really disappointing because it'll be it'll mean that the community is not who i thought they were dakota you're double vaccinated you're ready to go emma you've got to get on the list you're right there alongside me we will both not be vaccinated anytime soon but i pray that both of us do get on those lists and get moved up very quickly because i want to see you like in person it will be really great to be out there in a race. I want to see that new engagement ring that you've got on your finger in person. It'll be super exciting. But thank you guys both for being on the show. It's been a hard conversation, but definitely a conversation that we as a community need to have and need to continue having moving forward. The one thing that I want to stress is that we can't give up right now. It's like that dangerous point in time in a breakaway where, you know, you've got the you've got the break down to four seconds or three seconds. They're like right there. And then the field just sits up and the breakaway goes back as a breakaway rider. I'm really happy to be the person in that in that position where you're just like, oh, yeah, everyone, everyone wants to be in that breakaway. But no, we, we're so close. That's that's why I keep coming back to you. This is not a question of we return to bike racing now or we never return to bike racing. This is a question of, can you hold out two more months after a full year? And yes, I think we can. I think we we all know how to do long-term discipline. And it's, it's, it's very simple. Thank you both for being on the show. Thanks so much, Rob. I miss you. See you soon. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud member of the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. As an addendum to the show, actually after I got done recording this, I was able to get vaccinated. It was one of those things where you, I had to drive two and a half hours into rural Maryland to Salisbury, Maryland. And when I got there, I was in a parking lot at a convention center filled with a whole bunch of other residents from the District of Columbia who had also made that journey. And I got the shot. I feel pretty good. Was a little tired for the first couple of days, but I'm scheduled to get the second shot, this time much closer in Frederick, Maryland, in a couple of weeks. So next week, we have an episode featuring a very old friend of mine, Jed Schneider, where we talk about what it's like to be an aging athlete and what it's like to step back and, and look at the path that you've drawn from the beginning to where you are now and what lessons you can give to younger riders and ways that you can think about the sport differently. Hopefully you'll join us here again next time for more stories from our Criterium Nation. Dear cycling friends, we accept the fact that we have created the premier gravel and road racing podcast. 
And we don't think you're crazy to ask us who we think we are. You see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms, in the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a hobby blogger, a gravel pro, and a curious newbie. And you can find us on the Wide Angle Podium Network. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Grodio Podcast.